Section 20 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 1 by Alexander Dumas. Translated by G. B. Ives. Section 20. The Borgias. Chapter 11. Part 1. One thing alone was wanting to assure the success of the vast projects that the Pope and his son were founding upon the friendship of Louis and an alliance with him, that is, money. But Alexander was not the man to be troubled about a paltry worry of that kind. True, the sale of benefices was by now exhausted, the ordinary and extraordinary taxes had already been collected for the whole year, and the prospect of inheritance from cardinals and priests was a poor thing now that the richest of them had been poisoned but Alexander had other means at his disposal, which were none the less efficacious because they were less often used. The first he employed was to spread a report that the Turks were threatening an invasion of Christendom, and that he knew for a positive fact that before the end of the summer Bajazet would land two considerable armies, one in Romagna, the other in Calabria. He therefore published two bulls, one to levy tithes of all ecclesiastical revenues in Europe of whatever nature they might be, the other to force the Jews into paying an equivalent sum. Both bulls contained the severest sentences of excommunication against those who refused to submit, or attempted opposition. The second plan was the selling of indulgences, a thing which had never been done before. These indulgences affected the people who had been prevented by reasons of health or business from coming to Rome for the Jubilee. The journey by this expedient was rendered unnecessary, and sins were pardoned for a third of what it would have cost, and just as completely as if the faithful had fulfilled every condition of the pilgrimage. For gathering in this tax, a veritable army of collectors was instituted, a certain Lodovico della Torre at their head. The sum that Alexander brought into the pontifical treasury is incalculable, and some idea of it may be gathered from the fact that seven hundred and ninety-nine thousand livres in gold was paid in from the territory of venice alone but as the turks did as a fact make some sort of demonstration from the hungarian side and the venetians began to fear that they might be coming in their direction they asked for help from the pope who gave orders that at twelve o'clock in the day in all his states an ave maria should be said to pray god to avert the danger which was threatening the most serene republic this was the only help the Venetians got from His Holiness in exchange for the 799,000 livres in gold that he had got from them. But it seemed as though God wished to show his strange vicar on earth that he was angered by the mockery of sacred things, and on the eve of St. Peter's Day, just as the Pope was passing the Campanile on his way to the Tribune of Benedictions, an enormous piece of iron broke off and fell at his feet, and then, as though one warning had not been enough, on the next day, St. Peter's, when the Pope happened to be in one of the rooms of his ordinary dwelling with the Cardinal Capuano and Monsignore Poto, his private chamberlain, he saw through the open windows that a very black cloud was coming up. Foreseeing a thunderstorm, he ordered the Cardinal and the chamberlain to shut the windows. He had not been mistaken, for even as they were obeying his command, there came up such a furious gust of wind that the highest chimney of the Vatican was overturned, just as a tree is rooted up, and was dashed upon the roof, breaking it in, smashing the upper flooring. It fell into the very room where they were. 
terrified by the noise of this catastrophe which made the whole palace tremble the cardinal and monsignore poto turned round and seeing the room full of dust and debris sprang out upon the parapet and shouted to the guards at the gate the pope is dead the pope is dead at this cry the guards ran up and discovered three persons lying in the rubbish on the floor one dead and the other two dying the dead man was a gentleman of siena called lorenzo chigi and the dying were two resident officials of the vatican they had been walking across the floor above and had been flung down with the debris but alexander was not to be found and as he gave no answer though they kept on calling to him the belief that he had perished was confirmed and very soon spread about the town but he had only fainted and at the end of a certain time he began to come to himself and moaned whereupon he was discovered dazed with the blow and injured though not seriously in several parts of his body he had been saved by little short of a miracle a beam had broken in half and had left each of its two ends in the side walls and one of these had formed a sort of roof over the pontifical throne the pope who was sitting there at the time was protected by this overarching beam and had received only a few contusions the two contradictory reports of the sudden death and the miraculous preservation of the pope spread rapidly through rome and the duke of valentinois terrified at the thought of what a change might be wrought in his own fortunes by any slight accident to the holy father hurried to the vatican unable to assure himself by anything less than the evidence of his own eyes alexander desired to render public thanks to heaven for the protection that had been granted him and on the very same day was carried to the church of santa maria del popolo escorted by a numerous procession of prelates and men-at-arms his pontifical seat borne by two valets two aqueries and two grooms in this church were buried the duke of gandia and jan borgia and perhaps alexander was drawn thither by some relics of devotion or maybe by the recollection of his love for his former mistress rosa Bernazza, whose image in the guise of the madonna was exposed for the veneration of the faithful in a chapel on the left of the high altar stopping before this altar the pope offered to the church the gift of a magnificent chalice in which were three hundred gold crowns which the cardinal of siena poured out into a silver pattern before the eyes of all much to the gratification of the pontifical vanity but before he left rome to complete the conquest of the romagna the duke of valentinois had been reflecting that the marriage once so ardently desired between lucrezia and alfonso had been quite useless to himself and his father there was more than this to be considered louis the twelfth's rest in lombardy was only a halt and milan was evidently but the stage before naples it was very possible that louis was annoyed about the marriage which converted his enemy's nephew into the son-in-law of his ally whereas if alfonso were dead lucrezia would be the position to marry some powerful lord of ferrara or brescia who would be able to help his brother-in-law in the conquest of romagna alfonso was now not only useless but dangerous which to any one with the character of the borgias perhaps seemed worse the death of alfonso was resolved upon but lucrezia's husband who had understood for a long time past what danger he incurred by living near his terrible father-in-law had retired to naples since however neither alexander nor caesar had changed in their perpetual dissimulation towards him he was beginning to lose his fear 
when he received an invitation from the pope and his son to take part in a bullfight which was to be held in the spanish fashion in honour of the duke before his departure in the present precarious position of naples it would not have been good policy for alfonso to afford alexander any sort of pretext for a rupture so he could not refuse without a motive and betook himself to rome it was thought of no use to consult lucrezia in this affair for she had two or three times displayed an absurd attachment for her husband and they left her undisturbed in her government of spoleto alfonso was received by the pope and the duke with every demonstration of sincere friendship and rooms in the vatican were assigned to him that he had inhabited before with lucrezia in that part of the building which is known as the torre nuova great lists were prepared on the piazza of st peter's the streets about it were barricaded and the windows of the surrounding houses served as boxes for the spectators the pope and his court took their places on the balconies of the vatican the fete was started by professional toreadors after they had exhibited their strength and skill alfonso and caesar in their turn descended to the arena and to offer a proof of their mutual kindness settled that the bull which pursued caesar should be killed by alfonso and the bull that pursued alfonso by caesar then caesar remained alone on horseback within the lists alfonso going out by an improvised door which was kept ajar in order that he might go back on the instant if he judged that his presence was necessary at the same time from the opposite side of the lists the bull was introduced and was at the same moment pierced all over with darts and arrows some of them containing explosives which took fire and irritated the bull to such a point that he rolled about with pain and then got up in a fury and perceiving a man on horseback rushed instantly upon him it was now in this narrow arena pursued by his swift enemy that caesar displayed all that skill which made him one of the finest horsemen of the period still clever as he was he could not have remained safe long in that restricted area from an adversary against whom he had no other resource than flight had not alfonso appeared suddenly just when the bull was beginning to gain upon him waving a red cloak in his left hand and holding in his right a long delicate aragon sword it was high time the bull was only a few paces distant from caesar and the risk he was running appeared so imminent that a woman's scream was heard from one of the windows but at the sight of a man on foot the bull stopped short and judging that he would do better business with the new enemy than the old one he turned upon him instead for a moment he stood motionless roaring kicking up the dust with his hind feet and lashing his sides with his tail then he rushed upon Alfonso, his eyes all bloodshot, his horns tearing up the ground. Alfonso awaited him with a tranquil air. Then, when he was only three paces away, he made a bound to one side and presented instead of his body his sword, which disappeared at once to the hilt. The bull, checked in the middle of his onslaught, stopped one instant motionless and trembling, then fell upon his knees, uttered one dull roar, and lying down on the very spot where his course had been checked breathed his last without moving a single step forward applause resounded on all sides so rapid and clever had been the blow caesar had remained on horseback seeking to discover the fair spectator who had given so lively a proof of her interest in him without troubling himself about what was going on his search had not been unrewarded for he had recognized one of the maids of honour to elizabeth duchess of urbino who was betrothed to gian battista caricuolo captain-general of the republic of venice it was now alfonso's turn to run from the ball caesar's to fight him 
the young men changed parts, and when four mules had reluctantly dragged the dead bull from the arena, and the valets and other servants of his holiness had scattered sand over the places that were stained with blood, Alfonso mounted a magnificent Andalusian steed of Arab origin, light as the wind of Sahara that had wedded with his mother, while Caesar, dismounting, retired in his turn to reappear at the moment when Alfonso should be meeting the same danger from which he had just now rescued him. Then a second bull was introduced upon the scene, excited in the same manner with steel darts and flaming arrows. Like his predecessor, when he perceived a man on horseback, he rushed upon him, and then began a marvellous race, in which it was impossible to see, so quickly did they fly over the ground, whether the horse was pursuing the bull, or the bull the horse. But after five or six rounds, the bull began to gain upon the son of Araby, for all his speed, and it was plain to see who fled and who pursued. In another moment there was only the length of two lances between them, and then suddenly Caesar appeared, armed with one of those long two-handed swords which the French are accustomed to use, and just when the bull, almost close upon Don Alfonso, came in front of Caesar, he brandished the sword, which flashed like lightning and cut off his head, while his body, impelled by the speed of the run, fell to the ground ten paces farther on. This blow was so unexpected, and had been performed with such dexterity, that it was received not with mere clapping, but with wild enthusiasm and frantic outcry. Caesar, apparently remembering nothing else in his hour of triumph but the scream that had been caused by his former danger, picked up the bull's head, and, giving it to one of his equerries, ordered him to lay it, as an act of homage, at the feet of the fair Venetian who had bestowed upon him so lively a sign of interest. This fate, besides affording a triumph to each of the young men, had another end as well. It was meant to prove to the populace that perfect goodwill existed between the two, since each had saved the life of the other. The result was that, if any accident should happen to Caesar, nobody would dream of accusing Alfonso, and if any accident should happen to Alfonso, nobody would dream of accusing Caesar. There was a supper at the Vatican. Alfonso made an elegant toilet, and about ten o'clock at night prepared to go from the quarters he inhabited into those where the Pope lived. But the door which separated the two courts of the building was shut, and knock as he would, no one came to open it. Alfonso then thought that it was a simple matter for him to go round by the piazza of St. Peter. So he went out unaccompanied through one of the garden gates of the Vatican, and made his way across the gloomy streets which led to the stairway which gave on the piazza. But scarcely had he set foot on the first step, when he was attacked by a band of armed men. Alfonso would have drawn his sword, but before it was out of the scabbard he had received two blows from a halberd, one on his head, the other on his shoulder. He was stabbed in the side, and wounded both in the leg and in the temple. Struck down by these five blows, he lost his footing and fell to the ground unconscious. His assassins, supposing he was dead, at once remounted the stairway, and found on the piazza forty horsemen waiting for them. By them they were calmly escorted from the city by the porta Porteza. Alfonso was found at the point of death, but not actually dead, by some passers-by, some of whom recognized him, and instantly conveyed the news of his assassination to the Vatican, while the others, lifting the wounded man in their arms, carried him to his quarters in the Torre Nuova. The Pope and Caesar, who learned this news just as they were sitting down to table, showed great distress, and leaving their companions, at once went to see Alfonso, to be quite certain whether his wounds were fatal or not, and on the next morning, to divert any suspicion that might be turned towards themselves, 
they arrested Alfonso's maternal uncle, Francesco Gazzella, who had come to Rome in his nephew's company. Gazzella was found guilty on the evidence of false witnesses, and was consequently beheaded. But they had only accomplished half of what they wanted. By some means, fair or foul, suspicion had been sufficiently diverted from the true assassins. But Alfonso was not dead. And thanks to the strength of his constitution and the skill of his doctors, who had taken the lamentations of the Pope and Caesar quite seriously, and thought to please them by curing Alexander's son-in-law, the wounded man was making progress towards convalescence. News arrived at the same time that Lucrezia had heard of her husband's accident, and was starting to come and nurse him herself. There was no time to lose, and Caesar summoned Michelotto. The same night, says Bucardus, Don Alfonso, who would not die of his wounds, was found strangled in his bed. The funeral took place the next day with a ceremony not unbecoming in itself, though unsuited to his high rank. Don Francesca Bagia, Archbishop of Cosenza, acted as chief mourner at St. Peter's, where the body was buried in the chapel of Santa Maria della Febbre. Lucrezia arrived the same evening. She knew her father and brother too well to be put on the wrong scent, and although immediately after Alfonso's death the Duke of Valentinois had arrested the doctors, the surgeons, and a poor deformed wretch who had been acting as valet, she knew perfectly well from what quarter the blow had proceeded. In fear, therefore, that the manifestation of a grief she felt at this time too well might alienate the confidence of her father and brother, she retired to Nepi with her whole household, her whole court, and more than six hundred cavaliers, there to spend the period of her mourning. This important family business was now settled, and Lucrezia was again a widow, and in consequence ready to be utilised in the Pope's new political machinations. Caesar only stayed at Rome to receive the ambassadors from France and Venice, but as their arrival was somewhat delayed, and considerable inroads had been made upon the Pope's treasury by the recent festivities, the creation of twelve new cardinals was arranged. This scheme was to have two effects, viz. to bring six hundred thousand ducats into the pontifical chest, each hat having been priced at fifty thousand ducats, and to assure the Pope of a constant majority in the sacred council. End of section number 20